Oh my goodness. You're, you're wow. I'm um, on time. You're so, on time. And am I loud? Um, I had, the, you were well, cause, cause I had the volume turned up on my microphone. Oh, well, well, that's a, I, I'm sure that's a really exciting uh, wake up uh, or, or whatever. <laughs> or it was surprising. Whatever it was, it was surprising. It was well, and also I, uh, you know, I I just plugged in my microphone and I heard the phone ring, and it wasn't ringing from the right place. And I said, "Well, screw it. I just need to 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 answer." And then all of a sudden, it all magically worked out that you were you, yeah, you were, yeah. the sound was in my ears and my voice was coming through to you. And I think I even clicked the wrong button in Skype. <laughs> I I clicked the button to call you instead of to answer the phone. Oh my gosh. And um. Yeah, but it's all. It's just. It works. It just works. That's uh, that's uh, that's our new tagline for Skype. It just. It, it, it just works. works. Don't even. Don't think about it. It's just. It's gonna work. It's always gonna work. Um, and there's no snow in 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 our Skype lines, um, which is. Oh, there's there's snow in New Jersey. Oh my gosh, there's no. We we had snow here. It's it's all gone. Well, I still see a little bit, some remnants, but <laughs> when you say snow, you mean less than an inch. Oh, oh, well, well, less than an inch. But it was enough to shut down the entire state. For there are still schools closed today. <laughs> not my, not my children's school. Uh, we we are uh, fortunate to live in in a county where um, some sand and salt was applied to our less than an inch of uh, snow sometime over the weekend. Um, yeah, so we sand, we sand we were salt. Yeah, it's fire and fire and fury, sand and salt. It's <laughs> all the alliteration, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, it uh, yeah. So so you and I were scheduled to to do this uh fun fun thing we do we call a uh, a podcast last week on well Thursday. Well, to be fair, Ben, we call it a podcast, but it also is a podcast. Wow, well, yeah, mean, I... it's what I like to call a podcast. <laughs> is what. <laughs> Uh, it is a podcast. It is not not uh, you know some some might call it a pod. Uh, not, not, not us. Not us. Not us. Uh, only me if I'm if I'm hoping to to piss you off a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so we we received um, just a, a a whole bunch of snow, um, <laughs> which which totaled uh, less than an inch. Um, and, uh, and, and then my children were home, uh, Wednesday, uh, oh, wait a second. No, that's not true. Wednesday afternoon, they came home early because the Mm. snow was coming. Mm -hmm. Um, the snow started at at 1130 that evening. Uh, then, uh, Thursday and Friday they were off school and, uh, but back today. So everyone's excited about that. Well, thank goodness. Well, we uh, so our our uh, day of the the bomb cyclone um, here in New Jersey <laughs> was on Thursday, and um, uh, Rutgers was not closed. Uh, they they eventually decided to close at two o'clock um, after I guess everybody that had to go to, into the uh, into campus went there, um, which was just like the worst possible decision. It made it made it made no sense why they. It made no sense why they stayed open, and then it really once you're open, it didn't make any sense to close. It just it just <laughs> was like yeah, it just was ridiculous. But um, anyway, I was already working from home in anticipation of doing this podcast with you, so 
And then I, uh, I had to, uh, the snow, the, the storm ended here on Thursday, but we, uh, I just, I didn't want to do any shoveling cause it was still, it's, and it's still really cold. It's start, oh, it's finally freezing. starting to warm up. It's, uh, it's going to be 50 by Friday, <clears throat> but, um, it's, yeah, it was really, really cold here over the weekend and in, and in even, you know, and, and, and Friday as well. And I just, I was supposed to go into the office on Friday cause we had a faculty meeting and I said, you know, screw it. I'm just going to spend the whole day leisurely shoveling yeah. <laughs> the, the snow that needs to be shoveled. And it's great having a corner lot, um, except when it snows. And that means I have like probably 200 or 300 feet of sidewalk that have to be, <laughs> that have to be shoveled. So my driveway is very short, uh, but, but tons and tons of sidewalk, uh, shoveling needs to be done. And I, uh, I have a snowblower, um, but it, I didn't get gas for it and it's not, it's kind of underpowered for this kind of a storm. So anyway, I've been procrastinating, uh, buying a bigger snowblower or, and, or trying to find somebody that can do snow removal, but apparently it's hard to find somebody that can do snow removal, but they have, you know, I, this is interesting. Uh, they have, I, I don't know if you know this, Ben, they have, uh, like Uber for snow shoveling now, apparently. Oh, fa- of course, they, of course they do. And that's fantastic. <clears throat> I would have been, and, but apparently there's two apps and neither one of them apparently works that well. So, oh, well, that's, that's unfortunate. I, uh, yeah. Uh, as, as a teenager, I, I shoveled a lot of snow. I made a lot of money uh, shoveling snow uh, growing up in uh, the uh, heavily snowed area of uh, southern Ontario and had uh, had some regulars, had uh, four driveways that I would do every time it snowed. Um, but I never went, you know, was sort of walked and went door to door as a shoveler. Uh, but I, I bet uh, had I had a smartphone and, and existed in today's uh, world, I would have been signing up uh, as the uh, service provider on the uh, Uber for snow shoveling, and and I would have uh, I would have gladly hired you. <laughs> it would have been it would have match made in heaven. We could have done a podcast about about snow. Wait, wait, we are we've done it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, it's it's very cold here. Uh, <laughs> Continuing on with the weather. It's so it's so cold there, Ben. That literally, the water has literally frozen, such that you could go out on the on the water and play hockey. Yeah, which is um, amazing. Um, I, I've skated uh, outside in in North Carolina a handful of times. Um, I've skated outside in North Carolina on natural ice uh, twice before today and in our old neighborhood we had a uh, parking lot where where a pool was and uh, a couple of two years in a row we had um, just a lot of precipitation that melted and you know didn't drain and then it froze and and you know, there was an area where we could skate but it was really like I mean less than uh, I don't know a quarter of an inch of ice and there were parts where there were rocks coming up and so that it was cool and it was really notable and we're like, oh, that was great. And then um, oh, this weekend we've set some record, which we are still continuing to set, of continuous hours below the freezing mark in Raleigh. And it's at like 200 and, you know, eight hours or something right now. Um, and so uh, some some of the very shallow um, bodies of water, uh, there's a, a lake that is used as a um, reservoir for our water system. Uh, we hadn't had rain here for a while, and there was so little water there that it, it really like eight, eight inches thick froze um, you know, over a week. And uh, there, was, uh, there was a lot of hockey playing outside yesterday. It was awesome. 
Well, well that's that's nice. So I have I have to say I have never. Uh, I'm trying to think whether I've skated since I've lived in New Jersey. I don't think so. Um, obviously, growing up um, uh, not too far from you, but on the other side of the border, um, uh, well, and at a different time. Um, right, right. I, I skated a lot uh, as a kid in Ithaca and and skated some outdoors. And actually, my, my most – these are long, long ago memories, but I still have clear memories. So we used to live in when, – when, uh, when I was really young uh, and my dad was in graduate school, we lived in family housing at Cornell at Hasbrook Apartments. And there were other families there that also – were into skating and what they used to do is they would um, like go and, and set these, I don't know what, what they used, some sort of little retaining thing. It was because it, it was very flat there, you know, between the different apartment buildings and they would put this little retaining wall and they would, you know, put, put uh, water from a hose uh, and, and make this little, you know, really super thin ice rink and we would, we would skate on it. And, and that, uh, that was, uh, that was pretty cool. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think out there, there were a few times I think when I skated outdoors on natural, um, uh, natural, um, water, but that, that is always scary to me. And, and my fear perhaps showed through in my, uh, comment to you on, on Twitter or Facebook about like, I'm glad, or maybe text message that I'm glad you didn't fall through the ice. Yeah. You had a very nice picture of you and your son, uh, standing on, uh, standing on this outdoor, uh, ice. And, uh, and every time I see that, I think, oh, I, I hope someone's checked to make sure that ice is thick enough. It, well, and, and so, I mean, I, I've also, I also have that issue, um, of being worried about falling through the ice and growing up um not skating a whole lot outside on ponds um both of the or all three i guess of the municipalities that i lived in growing up there were outdoor um rinks that were just Mm. flooded Mm -hmm. parks right so Mm -hmm. someone would open up a a fire hydrant and I, i think officially like the fire department would open up a fire hydrant and would flood a uh, a park, and and then um, someone who lived near that park every night would go and and just you know take a hose and re, you know re reapply water just like you would in a in a hockey game, um, and and so I I mean I skated outside a lot, but on that on that on I, that right yeah never really skated on ponds before for that exact reason that I was consistently afraid of falling through, and we we just didn't get a lot of places where it would freeze. Th- you know, thick enough that you could do it. So this was kind of a, a, a special anomaly. Um, I, I, I was um, I, in the true, like most uh, hockey cliched uh, way possible. At, at one point yesterday, I was playing a game of shinny, which is um, it, it's, it's hockey without goalies with a lot of passing and you can never raise the puck. And it's this kind of game that, um, that that uh in a democratic way kind of evolves like you know, no one picks teams for the most part it's just a game that is always happening where someone is set up two goals and there are a couple people skating around and then you just sort of jump in and be like hey i'm on this team and then you, someone leaves and then someone else joins and and it just continues to go and and so yesterday i was playing a game of shinny with um two other well one other canadian who's lived in in raleigh for um, uh, 30 years and, and his son. Um, and we were playing against, uh, two guys from the Czech Republic who were, uh, uh we all, all of us <laughs> showed up at this place independently. Um, we know each other through hockey, uh, and, and, you know, the, the social media sharing of 
pictures of people skating on ice brought us all out together and we had this uh, international uh, shinny game going on where the two guys from the Czech were only communicating in uh, in Czech to each other. <laughs> of course they were. And, which uh, which we had to call out uh, and say, that's it's not fair, we don't know what you're doing. Uh, well, <laughs> you, you, it did, in fairness, you could have also talked to each other in Canadian. We, we tried, we tried to. <laughs> yeah. um, so it was, uh, yeah, International Day of Shinny uh, in, in Raleigh. Um, so one of the guys said that a neighbor came out uh, near this area and told him that the last time that section of water had frozen to where someone could skate on it was in 1994. So it was, uh, I think, a pretty special day. It was, you know, it may not, it's going to be 55 degrees here today. Um, and that ice will be gone within a, a couple of days. And, and it's not probably, probably won't happen again this year. So we had, tw- you know, 24 hours of good skating. And it was awesome. Oh, cool. Well, that's that's uh, that's nice. And I'm, and I'm glad it's getting warm. I'm looking forward to it being 50 something here on on Friday. I mean, I you know, I don't I don't mind the snow. I'm not a, I don't really love snow shoveling. I don't love the, the having to do that. Um, uh, but it's just yeah, I just don't like the don't like the cold. And it, oh, it's such a pain because people salt. Yeah sidewalks and then the dogs step on it and it hurts their little feet right. and so it's just it's a uh, it's just a big big annoying aggravation but anyway so so it goes yeah i uh i i'm good with with uh 70 degrees or whatever that might happen at the end of the week here so um yeah is it really gonna be 70 yeah it's supposed to be like it's something wow. insane i'll well. check my little uh, weather app here now that i have a an iphone 10 that works and it's fast oh. i can look at it all the time Wait, so before you had a slow iPhone 10 that didn't work? I had a slow <laughs> iPhone 6 that didn't work very well. Well, you know you know, Apple slows them down so that people will buy new phones. Heard, you know that. Right? I know. I'm ready to, <laughs> I, I've got my tinfoil hat on, Don. Um, I'm all, all foiled up. Uh, so it will be, according to Apple, uh, who's, who's probably conspiracizing with the um, – uh, sun tan oil lotion uh, people. It will be sixty eight degrees on Friday. Oh, nice! Yeah, in North Carolina, so close, close to seventy. But fifty five tomorrow, um, forty forty six today. So, um, well, welcome to weather talk. <laughs> yeah, welcome to uh, fourteen minutes of weather talk. Uh, <laughs> so we <laughs> that's an episode title right there. There it is. <laughs> We have some. I mean, we we had there was so much going on in the last couple of weeks. I mean, every conversation that happened on Twitter is now in our uh, uh, our notes file, um, and there's there's tons of stuff to talk about. Um, I we have some follow up uh, to to talk about uh, first, but um, yeah, it was. I was so ready to get on the uh, get on the Skype with you last week. I was. I mean, I was. Over overly prepared. There was I. I had taken notes. I had uh, I had a plan of uh, things I was going to ask you about, um, and then uh, I still have that. <laughs> so good. Oh, that's good. I thought you were going to say you, but you lost it, no, and so uh, you know the dog ate your notes, and so now we're just going to wing it. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, I'm I'm in. I'm I'm prepared. Um, so I have a. I, I want to start with uh, some follow up or or something that came into you and I uh, about um, about glitter. You know, oh, about, yes. you know about glitter. Um, I, I learned about glitter thanks too. to uh, thanks to uh, uh, an email from uh, a reporter colleague, and we, you and I, um, you and I did some some interviews on uh, on on uh, holo glitter. So yeah, let's let's talk about this. Yeah, so um, we got a, an email 
uh, last week from uh, Lindsay Christians, uh, who is a journalist who is working on a story for Roast Magazine's Daily Coffee News, um, which is a publication I was not familiar with, but uh, I am now. Uh, that there is, uh, and I, I like I like coffee. I just don't know a whole lot about um, sort of the the hip coffee. Uh, world, but there's a really cool uh, uh, spot. If, and I don't know if you had a chance to read any of the other stuff, but it was cool. Um, anyway, so Lindsay asked us if we had ever heard about glitter coffee. She said it's a trend that's currently mostly in caf- cafes overseas, Mumbai, Birmingham, England, some cities in Australia, but it's starting to come to the U.S. and she was hoping that we can help. Uh, coffee by D. Bella in Mumbai says they're using crystal sugar and food coloring cooked together to get a holographic effect on their diamond cappuccino. Um, it seems like a definite possibility, but that they're using, this is Lindsay's word, words that they're using something called disco dust, which I was familiar with. Were you, did you heard of disco dust before? I, I had not heard of disco dust. Um, Lindsay sent us a fantastic uh, video um, from YouTube about disco dust. I knew about disco dust because uh, uh, Don, I, I've mentioned multiple times that I, uh, am uh superintendent chief uh you know number one uh prime superintendent of the uh home food preservation competition at the state fair uh, <laughs> where where disco dust is uh is widely used it is widely used because i've also recently taken over the home baking competition uh, oh yeah you go well except yeah. except it's not entirely true because um i don't know much about baking at all and um i have a fantastic staff member, Katrina Levine, who um, I asked to oversee that. So she took care of that. But um, I did the decorated cakes uh, section and read up all about disco dust. So there is some edible um, sugar, sort of sugar-based stuff that has coloring in it that's – sorry, it's non-edible. Um, that is really like nail um, – like fingernail glitter or other glitter. A non-edible thing uh, that people use in cake decorating, and so um, what uh, what Lindsay wanted to know was whether, I mean, essentially whether we thought a that people might be using this non-edible stuff um, for their for their coffee, uh, these uh, lattes, um, because this glitter doesn't dissolve in water, and anything that is sort of glittery sugar should be dissolving in water. Um, and then she wanted to talk a little bit about, um, what would happen if people ate a little bit of, uh, or, or a small amounts of plastic, if this was in, in fact, uh, non edible plastic, uh, holographic glitter. And, and then we, we actually had a really nice conversation about, um, how, if, if someone wanted to purchase this and eat it, w- how could that happen from a legal, uh, state, uh, uh, a legal framework, in, um, a regulatory framework in, uh, in in the United States. So, for instance, if Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts wanted to start making uh, these uh, glitter lattes, what kind of rules would they have to follow if they said, okay, this is a non-edible food? So it was a really – I mean I had a really great conversation um, uh, with her. So what – I mean what were your, what were your thoughts on the, on the glitter? 
Well, so <clears throat> some of the some of the same thoughts. I mean, she she and she, you know, really did a nice job as a reporter to kind of set this up and explain stuff to us and mentioned that she talked to somebody at FDA. I she didn't link to but we will link to um, a piece on FDA's website about this. And I guess my my bottom line was I, I personally can't recommend it um, because this this stuff is not. Um, this, this, this dust is not food, so you should not eat it. If you did, um, it's probably low risk. I would say, you know, the, the chance of you, you know, getting, uh, significant health consequences from doing this, I would say are minimal, but I, again, in the end, I repeated, I just can't recommend it because, Certainly, it's not something that FDA is going to recommend. You can you can see that from their comments on their website. Um, and if it was offered for sale um, in um, at my local Starbucks, I might like to look at one. I mean, she linked to a wonderful tweet with a, just a gorgeous picture of this fascinating looking beverage that had this holo dust on top. Um, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to eat that. It, it doesn't, it doesn't even, and it probably would stick in your mouth. Um, yeah. It just, it just not, does not, does not seem appetizing and I cannot recommend it. No, although, yeah. although again, health risk probably minimal. I, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of came out at the, at the same, same spot. I, I talked about, um, there are lots of things that we eat that that are food that don't digest very well. Um, we're probably consuming, you know, small bits of of plastic um, mistakenly. Um, you know, not not every day, but but you know, throughout a year of of meals, we 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 probably all consume some plastic. So I don't I don't see like a massive um, public health risk. But if I was, I mean, this, this is where. I I, th- I thought her questions were really fascinating about h- how would you communicate this to someone who wants to consume it, and then in turn, how what what would your responsibility be as a business who wants to sell this, and it's not food, but it's but it's being consumed. I, I thought that was like a whole you know really um, uh, interesting uh, area to to talk about it's because I you know I do a lot of work with variances to the food code, so I. I said, you know, someone could uh, apply for a variance to the food code in their in their state to sell something like this, um, and and it would be a variance. I, I sent her to the the food code, and it was a, a subpart, you know, three six um, and uh, subparts six hundred one, six hundred two, and six hundred three on accurate representation and labeling and consumer advisory. But I also said that. If you know, her her question to me was, how would Starbucks go about doing this if they wanted to nationally? And I was, I thought, man, this is a tedious, complicated process because you can't just. Uh, there isn't a an, um, a a spot in the food code that allows you to pick up a consumer advisory for selling non food. It's only for undercooked, you know, meat meat products. So you know, every state they want to sell this in, they would have to look at what the laws were. And that just seemed not, you know, for a little bit of glitter and and maybe almost no extra money, uh, it's probably not not worth it. Um right. And and I and I think that they probably wouldn't do it <clears throat> without some sort of an endorsement or okay from the FDA. Agreed. Although of course they have to do state by state food code variances. And and if they really wanted to do something like this they have enough resources. They could probably um, contract with some food technologists and basically do the edible 
route, right? right in other right. words, you know, uh, let's figure out some, you know, you know, fancy way to put colored, you know, crystalline sprinkles. And they do that already, right, with some of these limited edition Frappuccino products, um, including a hideous one um, that um, our friend and, and sometimes listener Michelle Daniluk ordered at one point at an airport when we were traveling somewhere that uh, I think we took a picture of that just looked absolutely disgusting. And I think that was it the unicorn thing. I think that I was think. the unicorn. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so obviously they can do these one off, uh, special limited time off for things. They could do something like this. Um, I'm sure that if they were going to do that, they would use food grade ingredients. That's going to be, you know, I'm not a marketing person, but that's going to be the most, effective way to capitalize on this instead of like going down the route of getting variances and, and, you know, a much more complicated route of using something that's not food in food. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing that, that Lindsay brought up it was kind of this analytical issue. So, that, so what, what she kind of suggested to me was the, there, this idea of shimmery holographic glitter is something that people in the coffee and beverage industry have been looking for. And there isn't anything that anyone, you know, that, that the internets are aware of that, that, that would be available that that's edible, right? Like, like, so the, the idea, her, her thought was, um, you know, someone must be using disco dust here. It can't, it can't be that, that this is, um, an example of, of amazing food technology. Um, and, and I kind of not, I didn't push back on it and I just kind of said, maybe it is, you know, there, there are some fantastic food scientists, uh, out there that, uh, if there is a market for a holographic shimmery glitter that doesn't currently exist, um, maybe there is a process, uh, that, that someone has, uh, has created for this and it is edible. Um, and, and so we, we kind of went down this, this, uh, and where, where I wanted our, you know, where, where I want to ask you about, uh, this is as well as, as our discussion kind of went to, so say there was something in food that you thought was not what it should be like this, what process would you go to, to do the analytics on it? If this was in, you know, if this is in the United States, right? Like, could you call, um, your local health department and say, I think that there's a food company that's selling food that has plastic in it. Can you, can you test this food to see if it's plastic? Um, and, and what would, you know, what would that process look like? And, and so, um, that's where I started was, I mean, let, let's, uh, let's, let's enlist our fantastic local health departments and, and have them, uh, investigate cause it would be their, um, their jurisdiction. And, uh, maybe they, w in certain cases would come to you and I and say, okay, now we, what do we do? <laughs> <clears throat> well, right. And I would say if I was, a if I was suddenly found myself in a health department and I was asked to investigate this, I would take a, a, a different approach and I would say, oh, this is fascinating. Yes, this is an interesting product. By the way, I'm going to do an inspection of your facility, of your, of your cafe. Uh, and I'm going to look in all the dark corners and hidden spots and, oh, what's this I've discovered? Oh, it's a box labeled disco dust. Is this by any chance what you're putting in, you know? And right, then right. I, I, ta I take a sample of that. I take a sample of the food that you served. And then I send it off to a state analytical lab, or you could use a private lab. Or again, these folks are, are networked into uh, FDA, which has a tremendous analytical capabilities. And they can say, oh, yes, gosh, this coffee that you served has... <clears throat> 
this plastic compound and this plastic compound that you got from a box that's labeled disco dust, um, uh, in fact, is the identical same thing. Therefore, this is what you're selling. Um, you know, you're, you're in trouble. So, uh, yeah, I, but I don't I don't think you necessarily need analytical chemistry to solve the problem, because right. if they're putting this stuff on food, it's going to be in a box somewhere. And, um, you know, probably I suspect that if somebody was doing this, you know, they're probably not um, <clears throat> super clever people. And it's probably in the original container, which is probably labeled something like disco dust. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but again, I, I agree with you. It might be possible uh, for s some clever food technologists to develop this. But, you know, one of the things, <clears throat> one of the articles that Lindsay linked uh, linked us with is something from um, a blog uh, called easternblot.net. Uh, and there's an article uh, entitled Nail Art Fans Use Science Skills to Research Diamond Cappuccino. <clears throat> It's a relatively recent article from November of uh, 2017, um, uh, and basically they report that um, uh, the people who tried the coffee, uh, the, they showed a very solid dusting. It didn't smudge on a napkin. It stayed on their lips for a long time after drinking the coffee. It didn't dissolve, and it felt like sand in their mouths. <laughs> it sounds, so, sounds amazing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, <clears throat> I would say that's not food, and that's not food technology. Um, but again, it, you know, it's it's possible, but but it's not, uh, you know, it's not it's not easy. Yeah. To, to, it would not be easy to develop a product like this that that would have this shimmery color that would um, – because, you know, you probably would make it out of sugar, but the sugar is going to respond to the heat of the coffee um, and it's going to start to melt. And so it is a complicated problem um, to solve from a food tech uh, perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and like our uh, draggies. Maybe that's – that may be yes. how, how Lindsay came to us was our discussion uh, about the little silver balls. Um, could be, could be, uh, so one, um, one other thing that I wanted to, before we leave this is, um, around gold leaf as decoration on food, because this, in my little digging of this discussion, let me down that road, which we didn't really talk about, um, too much. And I don't know. I mean, it's, I think it's the same, same kind of thing, although, from what I can gather in my searching on the internet is there is there are lots of people online who are um, who who advertise you know twenty I've just found one here twenty three carat edible gold leaf um, and but it's not really edible it's just not no one has said that it's not a not a problem to add into food like fda hasn't it doesn't have an official stance on it interesting yeah so if anybody's listening um because i know we have some folks who uh listen to, to our podcast that are from uh maybe a, a federal agency that that starts with an f and ends with an a <laughs> and it's not does doesn't have an a in the middle it's not the aviation folks um <laughs> if you if you can follow up with us uh and we won't we won't say your name on, on the air or any of that stuff but tell us about the where this where this uh, you know edible gold leaf thing fits in um i think that would be uh we'll we'll continue the uh, edible decorations uh, talk here uh, and, next time. And, and I have to say we'll link also link to a uh, <clears throat> an article from uh, July uh, 2012 
from Slate, uh, entitled Conspicuous Consumption. I will just read you the lead. A New York City food truck is selling a $666 hamburger uh, dubbed the Douche Burger, which contains lobster, caviar, truffles, and a beef patty wrapped in six sheets of gold leaf. How much gold leaf can you safely consume? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Six six sheets, I guess. I guess. Yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Good stuff. Um, other, other follow-up, uh, from our last, uh, conversation. Um, I want to, I want to read, uh, an, uh, an email, um, that we had come in through the food safety talk, uh, website from, uh, Stuhlbert von Cibolo, <laughs> mm-hmm. which says privacy, share all details freely. And this, there is some pros in this email that I want to, I want to hi- uh, highlight, um, Message. Tis the season where I find a podcast where two smart people blabber about a relatively inane topic, which is mainly about the dialogue and ongoing narrative of two people talking instead of the actual content, which inevitably becomes as comes as a side effect. I loved it. Um, I've listened to every one of the episodes now at least twice. Oh Jesus! We have even we haven't listened twice. Oh, gosh, no. Well, looking for background noise that isn't the shoes for Mama's Christmas song. <laughs> uh, sick of fan, a fan, maybe. Anyways, um, my better name is Stuart, but this is uh, but if this is worthy of discussion on air, then I ask you to say Stuhlbert like it wasn't ever in question. Half anonymity, but uh, anyways. Uh, I took a food, f- f- few food science classes while attempting college, and I'm only three decades plus some years old. But all that same, uh, you two are entertaining enough. Begin actual thought if y'all want to maybe paraphrase. <laughs> I love Too it. Uh, something that always boggles my mind is the food handling difference between my parents' generation and myself. If I butcher a chicken at home before cooking... <laughs> Uh, because, duh, at least that much hasn't changed. I essentially dedicate one half of the two halves sink setup to being a meat sink, but still sanitize the entirety of the surfaces in the area, despite being confident that only a few places plausibly got poultry juice on them. But my dad and the other oldish folks of the sort are definitely a little more lackluster, yet aren't dead. I wonder about the why a lot. I grew up as a kid under the jack-in-the-box ruckus and recognition of nastier E. coli strains being a thing. Though my son lives in not Florida, so call me Mr. Coli while I attempt an upside-down joke, um, which better, which got better news coverage than it might have before it really existed in their time. Does this rambling make sense? If not, just take away the appreciation. Yours, disinfectingly, Stuhlbert. Um I, I mean, I felt like we needed to read the entire message from Stuhlberg because it was – I, I, we've talked in the past about there – sometimes I read authors just for their prose, and this mm-hmm. is an email that has not only substance but great prose. And he, and he did take a lot of time to, to write that, and so we should, uh, we should do it justice. So, yes. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, so, so herein lies the question, which I think is, is part epidemiological and part um, you know, food safety recognition. Um, why, you know, if, if we're bringing in pathogens to a kitchen and we're doing that every day, um, whether we're eating raw meat, which we probably are bringing in some more pathogens or not raw meat and other foods, we're still bringing in a, a, you know, a a little bit of pathogen. Um, why is it that an older generation who didn't probably take as much care or doesn't maybe take as much care when it comes to um, cleaning and sanitizing. Uh, why don't, why don't they get, uh, why don't they get sick? Why are they still not dead? 
Well, let me, so, so, so to, to, so one, one point to make to, to Stuhlbert is if your dad had poor food handling practices and he died in childhood, he would not be your father. Okay. Right. So, so right away, um, he ha has been selected, uh, by virtue of him having lived. Right. And so, so, so that's one answer is that the people that had really bad practices didn't live to adulthood. Right. And right. So, um, and not that he is necessarily more resistant, you know, evolution, you know, survival of the fittest and all that, but he might just have died. Um, <clears throat> And it's just dumb luck. So, so part of it, I think, is that a uh, part of it is that we as humans are relatively, uh, you know, we have functioning immune systems. We do get food poisoning. Um, most of us don't die most of the time. Um, but you know, it, it is still possible and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have, you know, that now that we know what to do, that we shouldn't do those things. Um, I would say too, epidemiology has gotten better. So, and certainly epidemiology for self-inflicted food poisoning from the home, um, you know, that's just not recorded. And so there are, I'm sure lots of cases of food poisoning that, that happen because people mishandle in their home and we just never know about them. Um, so it's I don't think it's as much of a puzzle as it is just the nature of the reporting system. That's that would be my first take. Yeah, I, I forgot to unmute my mic. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I think I so I, I did an interview for Smithsonian magazine back before the holidays. I think it was in November and we had a similar conversation about why why don't we you know if if food safety is a concern and um you know if we look at um the some evidence that we have in peer-reviewed literature about exposure to pathogens and um you know the the likelihood of 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 consuming um you know one cell or 10 cells or 100 cells it's 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 pretty it, you know it's fairly high um i i said something here that i i think w was um and you know a, a category or captured this nicely we consume billions of meals a year in the u.s that don't make us sick and there are millions of meals a year that do make us sick um and i think we have trouble figuring that out like it's a math issue. It's as you 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 highlighted the idea of um, of working immune systems. It is not super easy to get sick from from food, right? Like as much as you and I work on it, we work right. on the factors that lead to this illness, right? But but we there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff floating around that we're exposed to that that doesn't make us sick, and and I I don't think we have. There's not a magic bullet reason why. I mean, I, I think there's lots of factors um, for that, and so, it, yeah. And and I, I agree with what you what you brought up. It's it's entirely possible that um, you know bad food handling practices did make people sick, and and I mean it's likely that it made people sick um, generations ago. Um, but but we go we kind of go anecdote to anecdote uh, on this. It's hard to it's hard to look at it as a as a, as a math question. Yeah. Well, uh, and if it, and if it is a math question, it's probability, right? It's, right. it's, or, or phrased another way, it's luck. Right. And, and, and again, and I would say too, that just to reiterate my earlier point, the epidemiology is imperfect. Um, so we're missing a lot of data. And so, uh, yeah, but, but just because, 
Um, your parents didn't get sick doesn't mean that or didn't die doesn't mean that they didn't get sick and it doesn't mean that the risks were and, and you know and again to a certain extent I think the food supply has gotten safer if you look at what the meat and poultry industry in particular has been doing I think that they have been driving the risk down it might not always show um, but if you look at their data on prevalence of pathogens and concentration of pathogens, at least the data that I've seen, um, it does show a positive trend. And it's not it's not zero, but it's getting uh, it's getting better. So uh, so that that but again, that doesn't mean that you should suddenly start washing your chicken in your sink or not follow um, the kind of, you know, the kind of practices that uh, that that Stuhlbert, uh, you know, recommends or that, that, you know, he practices when he slaughters a kitchen, uh, a chicken in his home kitchen. <laughs> I like it. I want to. We, we should we should do a live on location from Stuhlbert's kitchen during a a, a chicken slaughter. Uh, um, so uh, you know the imperfections of epidemiology, I, I think, is a, a natural segue into kind of a messy looking uh, outbreak or two outbreaks um, or one one big one or something that's going on. Um, right now here in North America uh, that is uh, 015787 that Canadian authorities say is romaine lettuce. And uh, that's folks from the Public Health Agency of Canada. And CDC kind of says, eh, we're not super sure what it is yet. And the epidemiology seems pretty messy about it. And Consumer Reports says uh, don't eat romaine lettuce in, in the U.S. So I want to – I mean this is – uh, some you, we we've had some online discussions around this, uh, both on your Facebook page and and on the Twitter, and I want to want to capture this this conversation um, a, a little bit. So, um, I I I was uh, I'm trying to do more social media in the way that that social media is is done, not um, wait for things that I write on a blog post and, and post them like I have been doing. So I I, I took to to Twitter. Um, late last week while I was snowed in, um, and I, I guess kind of challenged the, uh, the consumer reports message. Um, and, and I'm, you know, my, my tweet and one of my messages is I'm with the data that's, that's out there. I'm having, I'm really having trouble answering the question on whether, uh, whether someone should do something differently, make a different risk management decision when it comes to romaine lettuce with the information that's that's out there right now. And um, this – what caused me to tweet this was actually another conversation – or actually four conversations that I had with journalists uh, last week when Consumer Reports put the message out and uh, essentially all asking the same thing. If, if Consumer Reports says don't eat romaine lettuce and the CDC says not so fast, what does a food safety specialist you know, think about that? Um, and, and I'm, I was on the, uh, sort of track of, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it could be that we're looking at two different outbreaks. It could be that we're looking at the same outbreak, but with a different type of product. Um, and it could be that it's all romaine lettuce and, uh, I just don't know. It kind of harkens back to no one's really good at sharing data about how they're making decisions. And that's a... Uh, that's a problem and as big of a story for me as um, what, what, can, what can a consumer do to avoid the illness. Yeah, and, and I have to share too that this came to me um, via social media, um, my own personal social media. I had a friend uh, from high school, uh, Dan Goldstein, and I don't think he listens, um, who's like 
you know, probably one of the smartest guys. And since he's not listening, I'll, I'll say how great he is. He's probably one of the smartest guys I knew uh, growing up um, who who said, hey, look, Don, please tell us what to do about romaine lettuce because it's percolating into the, the, the consciousness of normal people. Um, and then also piling on to that conversation was a friend of the, the podcast and I think a listener, Chuck Haas, who's a risk, uh, microbial risk assessor. Um, from Drexel University, who said that his own personal risk management management strategy was to avoid uh, the the big chains, uh, you know, packaged romaine from from big chains, and uh, which you know is is an interesting strategy. But I want to come back to something that you said is that we don't know what information these agencies are using. Like I would really like to, and I know that it's known within the fresh produce industry. I know that the harvest starts in the north and then gradually moves south as the uh, as the, the the season progresses and then and then they start over again right and so i'd like to know during the window when those cases were happening in canada where was that lettuce being harvested from right where generally is lettuce being harvested from that ends up in canada at those times and then and then again let's look at the window in the united states let's look at where the, that lettuce is being harvested and what's the what's the range of possibility like where where are people getting their romaine lettuce this this kind of year and I, this time of year? And I know it's variable, right? But but it's not that variable. Yeah. And and again, there's got and it could yeah, you're right. I mean, it could be. And I think there's some there's some language in some of the news that says similar strains. Right. What does that mean? So what does that mean? Yeah. Right? Did, did you do PFGE? Did you <sighs> do whole genome? Um, how similar? And yeah, so. So they're they're saying stuff, and they're saying stuff that you and I are trying to parse very carefully because we're listening for what they're saying and exactly how they're saying it. But that's you and I, right? Right? That's not normal people listening and trying to make to make sense of it. And, and yeah, we I mean, can't figure it out, and, right? And yeah, and sure, if you if you want to be completely sure that you never get sick from romaine lettuce, don't eat romaine lettuce. But but that advice holds true. In the future, and it's held true in the past, right? If you never eat romaine lettuce, you will never get food poisoning from romaine lettuce. Did, have I personally modified my romaine lettuce consumption patterns in response to this outbreak? No. Uh, as I mentioned, um, I we we bought some baby romaine, uh, you know, packaged baby romaine from Wegmans, and I've we have consumed it successfully without illness so far, right? Um, so, but again, that's baby romaine, and that's again, I don't know where Wegmans is sourcing their baby romaine this this kind of this time of year i would like to know that but i i don't i mean I, that's a little bit of an unrealistic expectation i think on on my part that i would ever get to know that but but it's interesting information and yeah we just there's so much that we just that there's so much that is known about this outbreak that you we don't know that is that you and i don't know right <laughs> yeah and so I, I, I'll let me. I'll, I'll send you. All right, send a couple of things. We'll we'll link to these. So on the fingerprint thing, um, the initial statement from CDC uh, on I think it was December 29th said that they're closely related. And so I I did a bunch of interviews, and then like three hours after those interviews, CDC uh, Ian Williams, who I think you and I. I mean, we both know from from CDC had a little more clarification to that statement, saying it has the same genetic fingerprint. Um, so I'm I'm guessing that that means we have a PFG match, PFG, yeah, and that um, CDC's message said that they're continuing to do tests. Which my my assumption is from their initial comment, they said they're going to do whole genome sequencing. So so it's kind of like we got PFG and it's the same genetic match to what the illnesses are in Canada. Great. 
And um, so if I – and this is really where, where almost all my questions or my answers have gone is based on the epidemiology that we don't know about uh, that the public health agency in Canada has – they made the recommendation that this is a romaine lettuce linked outbreak in Canada. So if I was in Canada, I would do a different thing than if I'm in the U.S. And this is a really like an interesting situation. Is it the same source? I, you know, don't know. Um, we've seen outbreaks in the past where um, you, you, water is a a, a strong a linking or a vehicle, I guess, for, uh, for, for pathogens. And is it possible? This is my not knowing enough about the fresh produce, especially the lettuce growing industry. Can you have similar water sources in the same geographic location, whether that be river or pond or whatever you're using? Um, and those are irrigating different lettuces. Like, are we looking at, a romaine outbreak in Canada, but a lettuce outbreak in the U S um, I don't know. I mean, I just don't know. And no one's like, this is the, the, I guess my, I would just want to keep coming back to this point. I, I, I'm getting frustrated answering these questions. Like, I don't, I mean, I like doing media. i like talking to journalists. I'm getting frustrated answering these questions when I think that CDC and the fresh produce industry could be answering in a much more detailed way than I am because they have more info than I do. And, and I continuously tell journalists, here are people that you should talk to about this because I can only tell you about what's publicly out there and it's not a lot to go on. And based on what's out there, I'm not changing what I'm doing for romaine lettuce until CDC um, makes, this, makes this link. And, and even that I'm, I have, like I'm having trouble with. I thought Chuck Haas's comment – about avoiding national brands of romaine lettuce, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it, and I'm like I I'm I'm almost uh, I, I don't actually like to eat a lot of romaine lettuce, so it's probably not realistic. But uh, <laughs> but but it, it, I think his point was based on the outbreak profile. If this is romaine lettuce, it's some romaine lettuce that's nationally distributed and probably internationally distributed, and that's probably from a large distributor. Well, but right, like that's that's his thought. That's his thought. I don't I don't know enough about the lettuce growing and distribution industry to know if that's true, right? Because it could be one farm or one set of farms that are all hooked up to the same bad water supply, and those farms sell to numerous small distributors. Right. Right. So it's it. You know, it's just not. uh, I don't know. I just don't know. I know people that know what that industry is looks like, right? And I know how it's constructed, but but I don't know that the regulators necessarily know, and and I sure don't know. Um, but but it would be, and, and so let me ask you this: when you when you talk to people, news you know reporters, and you say to go talk to these people, do you also give them like the kind of questions that you that you would ask if if that was you? Yeah, in, interviewing them, I, right? Yeah, I do. That's, I do. Yeah, and and I and I, I and in fact, what I. How I do that is I say they'll ask me a question like, for example, is it likely – and this is one of the questions that I got asked last week. Is it likely that this lettuce is coming from a specific geographic growing location in the U.S. that might have contaminated water? Um, and I, I say I, I don't know. I mean maybe, but that's a really great in, uh, question for um, 
the uh, L- LGMA, the Leafy Greens Marketing Agreement folks, um, United Fresh Fruit and Vegetable Growers, yep. the yep. you know the trade industry folks, um, FMI, the Food Marketing Institute, and you know we have we have lots of friends that are that are at in those positions. I'm like I don't know the answer to that, but if someone here are the people who I would ask that question to. And and I would follow up that question with a question about how 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 easy is that information to get? Like, would do, do the do the regulators also know where this is coming from? Right? Like, it's, it's so so I I'll answer their question by saying I don't know the answer. Here are the people that you should talk to, and here's another maybe nuanced question that you could ask them uh, that that would help frame the story. Um. So yeah, I mean, I I, I often do that. I often give people their email addresses. Mm-hmm. Say, so here's the person you should email, which I'm sure they're very happy about. Oh, they must love you for that. Yeah, and I'm sure they're like, uh, I, you know, Ben Chapman told me to email you. Um, so it it is, yeah, it, it it's just a it, this this one. What what we're what we're missing in all of this is you know is it lettuce? Is it not lettuce? Is this is a pretty big outbreak? Um, two deaths, fifty eight. Uh, illnesses as of Saturday, Friday or Saturday. Um, and well, but I think the other the other point to point out is like where it would be interesting to see the the epi curve from this because yes, it, the outbreak is continuing to grow, but it's growing in the past. I don't think there are new cases. It's more that old cases are being linked into the outbreak. Is that have I got that right? I, yeah, I think so. I mean, so. Uh, it, the the ep, CDC's only thing that they've got right now that they've publicly said is here are the cases in thirteen seventeen illnesses in thirteen states, um, and the date started November fifteenth through December eighth, right? And then the public health agency of Canada says something like you know thirty seven people sick in in lots of different provinces from early November till mid December. Okay. So yeah, it's but, like even that's I, not even useful to us. Well, and here's the thing. They have those dates. They do. Right? Uh, we could could you could you make an epi curve for us? Right. You know, like like the C and again, CDC probably has rules for when they construct those epi curves and the the strength of the data needed to construct them, right? But Often when we have these larger outbreaks than this, it says, you know, here's the epi curve, but cases that uh, happen in this window might not be complete. I forget the exact length, right? But there's a shaded part of the curve. I would love to see that. Again, here's the thing. It's like, uh, is the CDC talking to Public Health Agency of Canada? I hope that they would be. I hope – and why not make a joint epi curve if you think – I mean just – just for just for amusement's sake, I mean, I realize that I, as an academic, I can do things for fun, and, and the, these folks can't do that. But, but gosh, give us the raw data at least so we can make the epi curve, right? Right, right. But what would be the harm in that? I, I, I don't, I don't see, I don't see a downside. Yeah. Um, and and if, and if you are listening and you work for one of those agencies and you see the downside that I don't see, please tell us because I don't see, I don't see. I, there might be no upside for them doing it. But it's neutral, right? It's there's no there's no downside, and it would at least let somebody like you or me, if we wanted to, plug those data into a spreadsheet, right? Ex- exactly, and make, and make a graph. Well, and you've got here's here's the you know, big big picture step back, right? 
Um, there are tons of businesses in Canada a- as a result of the messaging that's out there that have stopped serving romaine lettuce, right? And that's that's a that that's a I think a correct risk management step. I I my guess, Don, is that even though we haven't seen it publicly, there's either some retailers or restaurants in the US who are not serving romaine right now because of this. Right, even though yep. there's all this uncertainty around it, it there there's you know some um, risk manager, smart food safety person who is like, can we just switch to something else right now? Because if this is an outbreak that's linked to romaine, then we don't want to be part of it. But I don't have enough information to tell me that it's not romaine, and and maybe CDC's like in the same boat, but this this will have an impact on that growing industry. Um, even though we don't know whether the outbreak curve is over and there's been some folks on, on social media who've suggested that, that there've been no new illnesses from mid December. So no one's in a real rush to, to answer anything because they don't think that the, the, the outbreak, that lot or whatever we want to, um, you know, the, the outbreak exposure, source is is still out there but there are some business decisions that are being made on it right now well and i can tell you for a fact and i think i may have forwarded this message to you i can tell you that there is at least one chain um that uh has made a decision to not to to substitute other lettuce for romaine right and um and and in fact that chain in doing that has caused other folks in an institution to consider whether they want to be selling romaine at all um, or they, whether they want to be serving, not selling, yeah. but serving, serving romaine at all. And so and I but I want to push back and I want to say I disagree with you that it's necessarily the correct risk management. It is certainly a risk management strategy. I'm not sure it's the correct. It's certainly it's certainly a risk management strategy that uh, takes the risk as low as possible, mm. but I'm not sure it's the correct strategy. And and my God, if I was a romaine lettuce farmer right now, um, I would insist that it's not the correct strategy because sure. it's gonna it's gonna bankrupt me or it's gonna cause my business significant financial hardship. I mean, see see for example the salmonella in tomatoes outbreak that caused huge trouble for the the Florida uh, tomato industry. That it wasn't tomatoes and it wasn't Florida, right? Right, right. So, right. so these risk management strategies have consequences, um, and what? those consequences affect uh, business people, farmers that 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 get the caught in the in the backblast. So, yes. Now, let's go go down this road a little more on uh, upside and downside. As a let's say I am <laughs> uh, breaking news. Uh, I am Compass Group, the nation's largest food service company, who suspended the use of romaine lettuce in all their operations. What is the downside to me to do that, right? Yes, I can piss off my suppliers and may hurt the industry, but if I like, if I if I'm playing the luck game and I am unlucky and it is romaine lettuce and people got sick after the date that I could have made this decision with this information, let's say it's January 5th um, in my, in my business. Now I'm dealing with the fallout of an outbreak that I might have been able to yep. avoid. Yep. And, and, yep. and with no, like, it, you know, in, in the uh, holistic connection of the food industry, absolutely. It may not be the right risk management decision, 
but it might be the right risk management decision to compass group at this time. Sure. 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 And I would say too, I mean, let's, let's say, okay, so if I'm going to do this and I'm in compass group, I'm going to talk to my romaine suppliers and I'm going to say, Hey guys, in an abundance of caution, we're going to do this decision. We know that it has a financial consequence. You know, we'll, we'll share some of that. You know, we're not right. going to buy your lettuce, but we'll guarantee that we'll buy lettuce in the future. I mean, something that protects public health, that protects compass group, that also doesn't burn bridges with their suppliers, right? And again, I, they have to be careful about doing that because they can't, um, there are, you know, they have to be careful to, to follow the law and they can't collude about prices and such All and such stuff. and such. Yeah, but, yeah. but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough, it's a tough situation. I'm, I, and there are times, Ben, there are many times when I am really glad that my job is to, to sit in an office and, and, and make a podcast yeah. and, and help my graduate students do research because this is this is some this is some some weighty stuff that these companies are having to deal with right right well and so i, I don't want to leave this yet because i think mm. there are lots of people out there that are in these different sectors that are uh, are, are making you know making decisions and if they if they did ask us what how to handle this so so for instance um if you were in a state health department and you had questions from um, local health inspectors about what do we do about romaine lettuce when we see it out in the um, in, a, in a restaurant? How do we, you know what are what would we tell them? And you know that that one. And then if I'm the the produce industry who I'm who I already have sent journalists to, and they said how do we wh what do we do here with all this uncertainty? What like what are our what would our suggestions be? I'll be. I'll play the journalist. Well, so I think public health does. Does local public health does not have a role? Certainly, as a, lo a local public health person, if you ordered a restaurant to take romaine off the menu, that is not. That's that is neither your decision nor do you have the power to do that. You might think that you're doing the right thing for food safety, um, and that you're some sort of food safety, you know, justice warrior. But but yeah. it's not. Right. It's not the right decision because it's not your business, right? Um, you could have a discussion with the restaurant about where they source their romaine, and you could make the restaurant aware. There is this outbreak going on. Uh, you could certainly tell the the if it's a if it's a mom and pop restaurant, they can ask questions of their supplier. If it's a chain, you want to have the manager of the restaurant talk to the food safety person in in that oversees the chain and say, "Hey, look, what are you guys doing um, about this?" So so, but but you, you don't have yeah. regulatory authority. So, and then in terms of, in terms of the industry people, I guess, again, it comes back to transparency. I want to know, and I'm sure that there are conversations happening now between Public Health Agency of Canada um, and the industry, between CDC, FDA, and industry. I'm sure there are teleconferences going on right now with those folks on the call sharing information that we're not privy to, that we will never be privy to, and the public will never be privy to. So hopefully those discussions are going on, and they are, you know, the FDA is pushing the industry for information. The industry is pu pushing back on FDA's assumptions and CDC's assumptions, and they are you know, work, working through this together to try to get to a place that is protective of public health um, that at the same time doesn't just, you know, slash and burn the industry to the ground. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming that's happening. Again, yeah. I don't I don't know. I, I you know, I, I agree. I think we're we're in a situation where um, and I keep 
keep coming back to this uh, this idea of sharing information, and we're we're in an outbreak situation right now where it is uh, uh, totally fine that we're uncertain about a source, right? Like let's not let's not pretend that that we can't go get good information out there if we just don't know what to tell people. But we there are lots of things going on that can help people understand why a recommendation right now couldn't be avoid all romaine lettuce in, in the US other than saying, well, we just don't have enough data. I mean, there it's a much it's a much fuller answer about here are the things that we do know, here are the things that we don't know. Epi is really messy. You know, maybe it's um, maybe our ep- maybe the case control study that's happening with U.S. cases doesn't match up with the case control study with the Canadian cases where we do have a source. All, like that kind of stuff. It, that those words matter to you and I, but there are great ways to communicate that to the public and and help them understand the uncertainty of a foodborne illness outbreak. And and I agree 100% with you that. It, it, why a local health department doesn't march into, um, you know, outback restaurant and say, get all the romaine from your, um, from your Caesar salad off the menu. It, even though a consumer may call and uh, call them and say, consumer reports said not to eat romaine lettuce. Why is my outback uh, serving it there? Well, and I guess what I would say to that consumer is then don't go to outback, right? right? right. Or, or go to outback and don't order the romaine lettuce. That yeah. it's that simple, right? You've been informed by consumer reports, they have an opinion, they are not a regulatory authority. I'm not sure I'm not sure that they're I mean, I don't know. I I've my respect for consumer reports continues to kind of go down over time net net. I'm not I'm not sure that they necessarily have the people that are really asking the right questions. But you know what I what I would like to see somewhere is I would like again and maybe maybe if you've seen this let me know. I would like to see some reflection from CDC that they've talked to their counterparts at Public Health Agency of Canada. I haven't seen that anywhere, but that's a logical thing. It's if you're if you're not doing it, I have to ask why. If you are doing it, why not tell us that? Because yeah. that would give me assurances that they're trying to look at this as big picture as possible. Right, right. And now, I maybe maybe there are rules about why they can't say that they're doing that. Again, I would like if there are people out there that know the answer to that question, I would like to know, right? But to me, it's a no-brainer. Of course, CDC should be talking to Public Health Agency of Canada about yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, and it's not. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I. It could be that it's in that nuanced messaging where they say things like, "We are following the outbreak in Canada." Well, I'm following the outbreak in Canada too, Ben, because I can read a newspaper. Right. 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 What does that mean? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. It, yeah. it, it, fat, you know. Um, again, you know, a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about this massive listeria outbreak in, in South Africa, outbreak after outbreak. There are things that, that either we, we have to take away from it and, and, and sort of learn from. And, and it is, it's worth us having this discussion because it's not, it's not simple of as, as simple as. Hey, um, some animal poop got on lettuce, and then it got into your bag of lettuce, and then people got sick. Like there, these these things, they are. I mean, it is complicated. It does depend. Um, <laughs> but but you know, they're being able to use these and have someone sort of reflect in the in, are the folks that listen to this podcast who are in sometimes these risk management decisions on. Okay, so this is romaine lettuce, but what happens if this was your product of, you know, tahini or 
um, hazelnuts or whatever, whatever it is that, that you make, how do you, how are you handling this? And is it any different? What lessons can we, can we learn from it? Um, I, I, before we, before we leave this, I, I do wish, um, that, that the produce industry also talked about the uncertainty. And I, I think there was, um, some messages from LGMA and let me, let me find it here quick that, that said, Hey, we don't, we, we, food safety is really important to us. Um, and that's good to know. I'm, I'm glad that food safety is important. Yeah. I have to, uh, while, uh, while you, while you, while you look for that, um, I do want to share something, uh, that, that Doug wrote that's, uh, that's, oh, you found it good. Um, there's, uh, so, so this is, I'll, I'll read from, uh, the December 13th, uh, blog post, uh, by Doug, um, where uh, he's quoting from public health agency of Canada. He, he writes, um, the government of commit, the, the, the press release says the government of Canada is committed to food safety. Doug's paraphrase. The government of Canada is committed to creating a perception of a commitment to food safety. <laughs> Based on this one so bullet I'm, point. Yeah. yeah. So so I'm, I'm glad that the LGMA um, is trying to create a, a perception that they're committed to food safety, but that sometimes, you know, you need actions, not just words. Yeah. So here, here are the messages. I've, I will include these in, um, in show notes. Um, bullet points. And again, here's a joint statement that has five bullet points, which is... Uh, uh, Let's not, I don't even want to get started on that. Um, first bullet point, CDC has not identified what food likely caused this illness or you know, caused this foodborne illness. And I think they mean illnesses um, <laughs> or outbreak. But um, I, the, the next sentence gives me heartburn. No public agency has contacted any romaine lettuce grower, shipper, or processor and requested that they either stop shipping or recall product already in, in the marketplace. A few things. One is often no public agency requests that someone does it. They say, here are the things you might want to think about a recall. But what is a bit cagey about this message to me is no 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 one in here says – or nowhere does it say that they haven't been contacted about, you know, shipment, uh, um, source, location, uh, you know, places where uh, they've distributed product. None of that stuff, which I'm assuming is going on. And if it's not, then that's like, um, you know, a major failure, both Canadian public health and CDC. And I don't think it is. I think someone, especially if they've named romaine lettuce, someone's calling somebody to say, hey, could you tell us maybe where your romaine lettuce came from? Um, requesting that they stop shipping or recall the product. That's, that's a, I don't know. That's a shifty, shifty message to me. Yeah. Well, you know, and at first I read that and I'm like, no, that's good information, but I think, I think you've convinced me. Right. And what, what they really need to say is, um, not only has no one been contacted, um, um, it is unlikely in most situations that that would happen. Right. right? Yeah. And then what, and then, and then the obverse or the, the, the counterpoint that you said is like, but, uh, they have been talking to, um, numerous shippers and processors, um, in an attempt to trace the source of the outbreak exactly. or something because that hopefully is happening, right? Instead, yeah. it's meant to create this perception that our product is safe and, and without blame. And it's not, and it's not us. And, right. and, and, and maybe it's not, but this goes to that. Um, let's keep, let's just keep talking about uncertainty because the more we talk about it, the more people become comfortable with it. 
Um, so you know, they have another statement. Even if this outbreak is confirmed uh, to be caused by romaine lettuce, it's important to recognize it's a highly perishable product with a limited use- usable shelf. And it's highly unlikely a specific affected lot would still be available for sale um, in or uh, for in a home refrigerator with the last illness being reported on December eighth. Well, uh, that is not. I mean, is it's that, a true statement. Let's yeah. be fair. Let's be fair. It's a true statement. Yeah, but but it doesn't reflect. It again, it's a statement that is written from the perspective of um, showing that they're not to blame. Yeah. And and doesn't you know goes back to that message that that you said of, except we might expect that more illnesses may come in. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, food safety remains a top priority. Blah blah blah. Industry has robust food safety programs. That's the uh, same bullet point that Doug talked about with the mm. yep. <laughs> uh, perception. Uh, our leading producer. Here's the thing. If, yeah. It, it, food you know what what would they say well you know we really don't think food safety is all that important we're not really spending that much money um but you know you'll probably be fine yeah. right what what's the who who wouldn't who who wouldn't want food safety to remain a top priority for them i mean it's a it's a motherhood and apple pie statement it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't help yeah right and how do we get to this place where we have these messages of in abundance of caution and food safety is our number one priority and you know just remind everybody that we have the safest food supply in the world right whatever those three you know kind of yes statements are it's just it just gets recycled over and over again and and we sit around you know on our podcast and in our circles and sort of um criticize it every time and but they still continue to to appear not that we have the power to to change all these messages, but we're not the only ones that are looking at this and saying, yeah, that's kind of a garbage statement. Um, uh, our leading produce industry associations have and will continue to f- cooperate fully with public health officials and get investigating this food warning illness outbreak. And and this one, uh, yeah, and that well, that that's good, Ben, because if they didn't, they might be go to jail, right? Yeah. If they didn't, if they didn't fully cooperate in a matter of public health, um, they could go to jail. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so so it's a good thing that they're not doing illegal things, illegal like things. not cooperating. Yeah. Right. And maybe by saying by doing this, by you know, here are the ways. We are fully cooperating with public health officials. Um, here, here are the things that we are sharing. We we are all equally as as interested in finding the source, whether it's us or somewhere else. And here are the things that we are doing. That's what's missing here. Mm-hmm. And and then and, and I'll, I'll this is a this is a format issue and this is an order issue. But the I, I guess the my my least p- favorite part of the statement is the last bullet, which is. Anytime we see an outbreak of any foodborne illness, our hearts go out to the victims. Well, that's your fifth bullet point, and I think that's your first. Um, I think and, it's and, – <laughs> And what that says – and of course it's true, Ben. It is. And, 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 and especially their hearts go out to the victims of people that, that got sick from not eating leafy greens. Right. Right? Because those are more important because those don't affect ours. the bottom line. It's a – it's a – yeah, it's, it's, it shouldn't be last and it's – it, it really, it's really too generic. It, uh, of course, of course, what? Because you're not a monster, right? Of course, your hearts, hearts go out. My heart goes out too. But, but I, if I was the leafy green folks, I would be more concerned about people that got sick from leafy greens. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah, right. And yep. And and the thing is, what what what's missing here is this is great. For the American public, 
this Canada, you know, it, it, the fact that Public Health Agency of Canada is, has linked epidemiologically their products to uh, to romaine lettuce, they don't say anything about what they're doing to investigate the source of of the illnesses that have already been linked, right? Like this is this this is purely a, a statement specific to U.S. customers, and yet and yet it was attributed to Canadian PMA. If you w- right. scroll further down, so the Canadians are part of this message, right? Yep. Yeah. Ah, I don't know. So I guess that that answers my my question of what kind of messages would we want, would we suggest or what would we tell the industry to do? Like less of this and more about what what the real what the real situation is. And if there is if there really is um a concern that the that it's not that that the Canadian illnesses aren't linked to romaine or that um, that the you know the U.S. illnesses aren't aren't linked to lettuce or, or romaine as a CDC, then then tell us why you think that, right? right? Like, what information do you have that that isn't publicly out there? Um, because it, it really, on the surface, just kind of says, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not probably us, um, and no one's told us to stop ship, shipping it, so we're going to continue to ship it, right? Ugh. So. Oh, Don, Don, you're um, I've I've one more one more like fun one for this week that that kind of uh-huh. that kind of had some uh some social media follow up for is us. it is it is it raw water? Please let it be raw water. Let's do raw water. It's not that, but I want okay. To, it's not raw water. Okay, no, let's do raw water first though. Yeah, so now it's raw water. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Sorry. Nope. I really thought it was raw water. I'm not ready to talk about raw water, but because oh. um, uh, I've just been letting you steer the boat here. Um, so, uh, oh, well, yeah. So, um, so people are yeah, so raw water. Raw- <laughs> so this is, this is another one um, that came across my, um, uh, my, my food safety uh, feed um, uh, in, in social media. And I have to – I will start with uh, reading from um, uh, the thing that got my attention. Um, uh, and so that I think where it started was a New York Times – article and I think it was last weekend. Um, but I have this this is this this is a great quote, um, uh, which I think is from the New York Times article and it reads as follows The most prominent proponent of raw water is Doug Evans, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. After his juicing company, Juicero, with who we've talked about before on the podcast, collapsed in September because apparently they were selling a really expensive machine um that didn't when- do anything. Yeah, you, and you could just squeeze it like by hand, and it would be almost as good. Um, uh, he went on a ten-day cleanse, drinking nothing but live water. "Quote: I haven't tasted tap water in a long time," he said. Before he could order raw water on demand, Mister Evans went quote spring hunting with friends. This has become more challenging lately. The closest spring around San Francisco has recently been cut off by landslides. So reaching it means crossing private property, which he does under cover of night. This is a person with too much money and too much time. (laughs) Ah, what, ah, what, um, moron. I mean, my God, it's, I guess, I guess he's not using his money for evil, but this is just, uh, this is just really silly. Uh, my favorite, my favorite quote, um, is is about uh, pure water. Um, pure water can be obtained by using a reverse osmosis filter, the gold standard of home water treatment. But for Mr. Singh, 
The goal is not pristine water per se. Quote, you're going to get out 99% of the bad stuff out, he said, but now you have dead water. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want dead water. Uh, I don't want dead water. I want, I want water to be living and breeding. Oh, definitely. Oh, and the other thing that came across uh, my my uh, feed a couple of times because he was relentlessly uh, tweeting this is uh, uh, the the article from Business Insider. Uh, food safety expert warns latest bizarre Silicon Valley sixty dollar raw water trend could quickly turn del- could, could quickly turn deadly. Um, do you know who that food safety expert was, Ben? Uh, someone who uh, might, might sue people in the food industry when they make <laughs> yes. people sick. Exactly. And, and a guest on the podcast uh, for the uh, wonderfully named uh, Where's My Wallet um, episode. <laughs> I think that's what it was called. Uh, yeah. That's Bill Marler, a food safety law- lawyer, who, who again, you know, in, in he does get a lot of opportunity to give, uh, to give uh, good quotes. And uh, he was featured in this uh, Business Insider article, um, which we will link to as well. So, uh, yeah. And so, it, and, and, the, in the lead to that article, it's, uh, it points out the um, the New York Times uh, trend piece, which is what really started it all off. So um, we will link to that as well. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't – if you've been living under a rock and you haven't heard about raw water, um, by all means, go and read uh, Bill Marler's warnings on, on Business Insider and then uh, read the New York Times article, um, uh, which is entitled – Unfiltered fervor: The rush to get off the water grid, which is a great title uh, uh, for an, for an article. So, oh, it's so good. Um, the last thing from this New York Times article, uh, just the live stuff. Uh, quote: This is from uh, Daniel Vitalis, who hosts a podcast called Rewild Yourself that promotes hunting for food and <laughs> gathering water. Um, he started a, a, a site called findaspring.com to help people locate springs. He prefers the team unprocessed water, which echoes the idea of processed versus unprocessed food. Quote, I don't like raw water because it sort of makes people think of raw sewage. Mr. Vitalis says, quote, when you say live water, that's going to trigger a lot of people who are into physics and biology. <laughs> Is it alive? Question mark. I, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, so we can uh, yeah before we leave this we can snicker um a lot on this and and there you know we next week will there'll be some another trend and people will will drink this water and likely uh, you know a small portion will end up with some uh giardia or um some you know other you know a parasite of of some sort uh that's that's waterborne um I, and and our, you know, our food safety um, community online has been been pretty like, uh, I don't know if it's condescending. This is not, food, you know, food safety for the for the everyday people, right? Like raw water at sixty dollars a gallon. We're we're ta- we're not talking about um, the mass majority of of people in uh, in the world. And if someone wants to spend sixty dollars a gallon on something that they think is alive, that is. Um, you know, and they're into physics and biology. Let them let them drink their water, Don. That's what I say. Um, and and if they uh, want to make a decision based on risk, then then they should uh, investigate it. Um, but it's I, it, it, like like the is it a uh, black and gold dress or or no white and gold dress or blue and black dress? This is just the you know three days worth of the internet's uh, food safety discussion, and there'll be something else next week. So, but what, one more one more quote from the New York Times article. So this is quoting uh, Mukande Singh, the founder of Live Water. 
Um, uh, Mr. Singh believes that public water has been poisoned. Quote, tap water, you're drinking toilet water with birth control drugs in them, quote. He said, quote, chloramine, and on top of that, they're putting in fluoride. Call me a conspiracy theorist, but it's a mind-controlled drug that has no benefit to our dental health, close quote. Parenthetical from the New York Times, there is no scientific evidence that fluoride is a mind-controlled drug, but plenty to show that it aids <laughs> dental health. Thank you, New York Times, Thank for you. the parenthetical correction. Yeah, yeah, and more, they actually kind of need more of that in here. I think so. There needs to be a little, a little more. I, I expect more from, uh, from the New York Times. You know, the fake, fake news. New York Times on, on the failing New York Times. The failing, yeah, failing New York Times. Oh, uh, so yeah, uh, raw water. Okay, so here's what I really wanted to get to, Don. Yes, um, your biscuits might, who frozen raw biscuits that are intended to be uh, baked, they might have listeria in them. Uh, mm, I am not really worried. Not, yeah, not really worried, but. Here's the thing. There's going to be a recall, right? And yes, of course there, there is, is because zero tolerance. Oh, I so so I I, I didn't um I I want to I want to talk a little bit about this. I didn't get into into some trouble on this, but I did I want to clarify some of my comments because a uh, friend of the podcast, um food food risk guy uh, John Bassett said he didn't dis- he disagreed with with some of my comments uh, in my blog post on uh, on the Twitter and, um, and and I wanted I I guess what I wanted to clarify so what is, okay well, let me set this up so uh, there's a company um, T Merzetti recalled a whole bunch of partially cooked um, uh, frozen ready to bake biscuits, and they did so because of uh, what what I'm guessing is a listeria positive that someone told them about, or they they found themselves. Um, probably more likely, someone someone downstream from them opened a bag and, and tested for presence of absence of listeria. And what what I you know this goes back to something that we talked a little bit about in our last uh, episode. But what I wanted to to get at here was. Presence absence in this product is, is a regulatory question, um, and but doesn't really tell us much about the public health concerns. And if you could just enumerate this stuff, and if it's one cell per biscuit or a million cells per biscuit, we have a different. It's a different issue. Um, and regardless, someone finds listeria monocytogenes in a product that has. Um, yeah, that that can't support the growth of listeria. It's still going to be recalled. Um, and so you know, a couple other folks um call call me out, and I think raised a really good question about this enumeration thing. Um, you know, uh, essentially saying, well, how many biscuits below a hundred CFUs per gram do I need to see before I think that my product is safe? You know, essentially is the the question, and and I don't really have a good answer for that at all. But I don't know what what I want people to do is enumerate, and then we can have a better conversation about whether there is a public health risk from biscuits or not. And well, I, yeah, I, I can say without doing a risk assessment um, or w- without doing calculations, the risk is very low because these are products that are going to be baked, right? There's maybe some cross-contamination risk. Uh, I've got to imagine that the level is low. Um, but I, I mean, they have to do a recall, right? I mean, right. 
Well, I don't, they, maybe they don't have to do a recall. Maybe, uh, you well, know, because had, it, it's it's a ready, it's not a ready to eat food. Yeah. Right. If they, so here's how they could not do a recall, right? If they could enumerate it <laughs> and, or if someone could tell them what, what the, what, uh, you know, what the, um, uh, concentration was and if they have validated cooking instructions for it. And, and I don't know if they have either of those two things. Mm. Um, but that's how they could have, you know, how, how they could avoid this, this recall. Although that's how the company, you know, T. Merzati could do it. They may have a customer who says, I don't want to sell stuff that has even the presence of Listeria monocytogenes in it, which is not, you know, going back to our correct or incorrect risk management decision. A retailer may say, I don't, I don't care. I don't care what the enumeration is. We have a positive um, and we don't want to sell it. So here's all your, here's all your biscuits back. Um, yeah. which, so, I mean, I think that's, yeah, but we, we can't have a fully constructive conversation about this correct, incorrect until we can put a number to the, the contamination as, as far as, as far as I can, I'm concerned. That's yep. I, I, yeah, I would, I would, I would agree. I would agree. Um, so, so we got that. Um, I want to come back to something that you talked about uh, on on the uh, on the Twitter on the Tudor, um, which you have titled in our um, uh, in our Dropbox. Oh, come on, USDA, USDA, really? <laughs> yeah, I've I've taken to trying to uh, to come up with titles that will help me remember why I wanted to talk about that. So. So this, yeah. is, this is a picture, a JPEG, that was shared on social media around chill. Um, and I'm going to read we'll, – we'll link to this because I think we'll be able to find it on uh, social media. Uh, chill, take time uh, – take your time around dinner table but refrigerate leftovers within two hours. It is safe in the fridge for three to four days. Safe frozen but used within two to six months for best, best quality. Um, and then it gives a calendar uh, that says – the last, and I think this is where your point was. Yep. Um, that said, you know, Christmas was on a Monday, and it says check, check, check for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And Friday is circle is the last day. Christmas leftovers stored in the fridge are safe. And I, my guess is, um, oh come on, USDA really is that's would you know maybe a more correct. Um, message here is that this is the last day that Christmas leftovers stored in the fridge are at their best quality if you are storing it below 41 degrees Fahrenheit or or something along those lines. But but it's not a safety question. Um, in, in- right. And I, I quoted the USDA tweet um, and I, I don't have my 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 Twitter in front of me, but uh, something like um, saying so sp- pathogens spontaneously generate um, uh, in the food on, on on that day. Right. Because that's that's what that implies. And it's just, you know, and again, we've, we've taught we love to bash on our, our friends uh, at USDA for their uh, and FDA, too, if they have poor risk communication messages. I think this is sending the wrong message, right? People are confused about food spoilage and food safety. Um, and this message exacerbates that. It doesn't alleviate that, right? Uh, it's not as if, um, well, so first of all, if you had pathogens when you put it in the fridge, 
you probably had pathogens when you were eating it, which means you're probably already sick, right? Or there's a chance of you being sick. And if you have poor refrigeration temperatures, um, you're growing pathogens. Now, if you, if you have good refrigeration and it's listeria, well, you're growing listeria too. But it's n but the bottom line is it's not about safety, as you, as you correctly pointed out. It's about spoilage. And so uh, why not just say last day Christmas leftovers um, – uh, uh, last day to eat Christmas leftovers for best quality, right? Yeah. Because because they, clearly they can talk about quality. And see, and here's the thing. They say safe in the fridge three to four days, safe frozen, but use, but again, safe frozen, but use within two to six months for best for quality. quality. So they, yeah. There, they're mixing quality and safety messages. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just, uh, it's not a... Yeah, and again, they say, yes, bacteria that cause foodborne illness can't be smelled or tasted. That's true, but it's, it's again, it's, I think that they could, they could achieve what they want to achieve without further confusing people. Now, maybe they don't need to unconfuse people, but they, they could change the messaging by not mentioning safety and by talking about quality. Um, just make this message all about quality. Don't even mention safety. And most people are going to read it as safety anyway because people are confused. But by specifically calling out safety, you're creating confusion in people's minds. And that's what I objected to. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. And I, and I think, um, you know, for uh, you know, full, full disclosure on you know, projects that I'm part of, one of the things that that I'm helping with a project is investigating some of these messages and, and testing them. Um, although the changing of the messages is probably outside of the scope of uh, of the you know the recommendations that that we have, but is you know does this change if we if we give this to somebody does it actually change whether they're going to um, you know chill yeah, uh, uh, correctly and I'll put that in 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 air quotes um as per the per the messages and i and i i agree i think that this this idea of safety versus quality and and confusion may lead to um some some issues because if we the the quality may even go longer right like that's it's subjective and once people ha are rooted into well i eat this the food that's in my fridge for like 10 days and now we may be going over this um, this safety issue, uh, if you know, depending on what the temperature of their fridge is when it comes to listeria growth. But um, but they don't see any quality differences. It, it, it makes it a really hard message to even get the the the, the behavior change that, that you want. And, and so I, I I agree. I think that um, parsing parsing these things out, and it's often a conversation that you and I have with journalists over. Best before, use by, sell by dates. That the first thing that we start talking about is here are things that we do for quality, and here are the the food safety reasons why these messages might be there. And it's really hard to get our get our hands around um, even even deconstructing those those types of dates. So, but I mean, you know, I do like I do like calling people out on the, on the Twitter. So good job, good job by you. Yeah, thanks. I found that I found the tweet, and we will link to it. Uh, my my, my uh, comment on it was so today pathogens spontaneously form in our leftovers. That's super cool, uh, which is a, re a a reference to uh, Louis Pasteur and of course the amazing uh, Dr. Drang. Um, uh, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Dre, the amazing Drang, Drang. <laughs> 
D-R-A-N-G, as in Sturm and Drang. Oh, I've, I, um, he's, he's, he's a, he's a well, well-known on the nerd. Uh, he doesn't listen. I'm sure well-known in the nerd circles. Um, he's a structural engineer, um, who investigates a building collapse and, and such, and, uh, writes a lot about, um, you know, hacky, uh, coding things on the internet. I found out about him through the amazing, uh, Merlin man. So, um, yeah. And so he sometimes will uh, comment on my, my Twitter posts and, and vice versa. So, and he has, has his uh, icon, a uh, very, very scary, uh, snowman base. Well, so anyway, we will, uh, I will start, uh, uh, following the amazing Dr. Drang, and I am a fan of the amazing Dr. Dre. So, okay. yeah, so, but I will not get them confused. No, they're very different people. One is a structural engineer, and the other is a rapper. Yeah, and and, <laughs> uh, and, and producer, and producer. Sure. From Compton, sure. from the city of Compton. Uh, so, straight, out of, straight out of Compton, Dan. He I is. Think. He's straight out of Compton. Uh, one one of the <laughs> best movies. That's the end of my knowledge. Yeah. Uh, one of the best movies I've seen in the past year. Uh, I was a little late to the game on that. Straight out of Compton. Uh, Don, I think that might be a show. Well, you know, my timer says uh, an hour and 17 minutes, but I think there's 14 minutes of um, hockey talk, uh, ice talk. That we uh, cut, that's, that, that, yeah. we, that, that we'll leave in. That you'll, spl- you'll splice back I'll in. I'll splice right? back in. It's going to be awesome. Uh, I guess before we go, uh, I'm, I'm enlisting you in some homework. Uh, oh, oh, wait, I did my homework, my other homework oh. from before. We binge watch One Mississippi. Great show. Highly recommended. Excellent. It is super great. Um, one of my favorites. And uh, I don't know if this was actually assigned homework, but what started us on the One Mississippi talk was The Marvelous Miss Maisel. And I have watched the first four episodes of that, and it's fantastic. Yeah. Good. Love glad, it. Love it. Glad to hear it. All right. So here's our next, uh, here's our next homework. Uh, this came from, uh, some tweets, uh, people wanted to highlight to us, but there's a new Netflix show called rotten about food fraud. And I think food safety, and I haven't watched any of the episodes, but there are six of them. And uh, the first episode that you, uh, highlighted in, in your tweet was what a great episode title lawyers, guns, and honey. So, <laughs> yes. so let's, let's watch the, we're turning this into a challenge podcast. Uh, <laughs> I let's uh, watch lawyers guns and honey and we'll have a review for uh, next uh, next episode. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Don. Uh, enjoy the snow. Don't get too cold. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye.
right. So, good. Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, I guess, I mean, I guess we had some more time, but I have to get on. No, I, no, yeah. we're we're good. I think we're 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 it's that's a, that's a normal episode if you yeah. the hour and a half. So yeah, and it was good. We got good hit all hit all the good stuff. Indeed. Um. Okay. So let's look at dates. So today is the eighth. Two weeks from today is the twenty second, and I think that that would work for me if you are if you're available on Monday the twenty second. I am. I'm wide open. Oh, but me too. Nothing at all. Well, let's go. I like this time. Ten o'clock's good. Okay. It gets me like in into my day, and then I'm done at you know noon, and I can get some other day stuff. Yeah, it's good. You know, I, I, I think I have better energy. I mean, I try, try to save the morning for doing important work, and I think the podcast is important work, and my energy is good. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So 10 a.m., FST 144, January 22nd. Sounds good. Cool. And this episode is mine. It is. And I I'll, – I'll... I'll drop the uh, links into the Dropbox. Perfect. And I, yeah, my call, call recorder is working yet again, so um, so everything's good. Yeah, but you you'll you'll you will also have two two separate I do. recordings, right? Because I, I yep. yeah, I have two separate recordings. I will uh, splice those together. Uh, yeah, and we should be good to go. And I'm, I'll try. I think I might be able to get this uh, done around three uh, thirty or so today. Cool. Yeah. I have some. I still have to finish some abstracts, but other than that, we're good. Oh, to go. for I, for IFP. Yes, yeah. yeah. This, uh, have some some abstracts that um, that I'm co-authoring with FSIS, and they have to review them oh, before. God. So, which is fine. That's, it's like well, it, it, it gets you get it done early, right? Exactly. Which and I have other abstracts that people don't have to review that I've been able to push until these ones are done. So, oh, that's good. Yeah, I, I spent the weekend editing uh, abstract a weekend and the end of last week editing abstracts from some of my brazilian colleagues and uh, now they're coming in from my students so i've got one on my desk so i want to get that i want to get that done and out of here because the the deadline's coming up soon right uh yeah i think it's next tuesday mm. week today all right get your abstracts done kids get your abstracts in um yeah and uh yeah and then uh, and cfp issues are due this the end of this week Oh, yeah, I thought we were going to get something in on uh, bulk soap or water temperature, but I don't think we are. So I think we're going to get something in on um, labeling mechanically tenderized beef and how it's supposed to – because it's not in the food code. It's still not there? Well, so it's – USDA requires it. Okay. But, but they don't have – pro, so they don't have proactive oh, – no. yeah. yeah, like they don't have inspection. So we want to make it – like take the USDA stuff and just throw it in the food code. So then uh, local health inspectors could uh, actually regulate that. And they may be not happy with that, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I think it's important because we've got, we, and we have some data. um, We've got uh, a publication coming out in a couple of months. I think it was just accepted in November um, with uh, in uh, looking at the, awareness of labeling at small uh retailers especially ethnic retailers or or, you know not ethnic retailers that are serving ethnic foods in different communities and um they're they don't really know that they have to label it oh 
So hmm. so we will use that data. That seems like a reasonable data to use. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, I will uh, talk to you in two weeks. Sounds good. All right, Don. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.